This week on Dig Me Out. You're unbelievable. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, it's our first roundtable of the year, which means we're going to go back to a year. Usually we went 20 years. This time we're going back 30 years. So get out your AARP cards, your canes for walking, <laughs> your put your teeth back in. It's time to talk about 1991 albums. Some people chimed in, Jay, that they weren't even born when this year happened. No. And uh, I think we should be penalizing them in some way for uh, pointing that out. But I think they're liars. It's impossible. I yeah, I know. Everybody was born by 1991. It's just that's just a fact. There were there are no, there's nobody younger than that. Uh, Jay, 1991 yes. is it the most pivotal year in all the 1990s of, as far as music goes? Well, doing my research for this episode, I I'd have to say yes. In fact, I think we could probably do an episode on every month and have plenty to talk about. <laughs> Let's do that. Um, we're starting start to with lay it out. January. It's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, um, I know. It, there's. There's definitely a story there, uh, more so than maybe any other year that we've we've talked about. So I'm excited to do it. So we threw it out to the Patreon community and said, hey, who wants to join us? And um, we got a whole bunch of people, some returning folks, some old friends, some new friends. Let's go around the room. Center Square. <laughs> we've got Marissa Buxbaum back. back. Hi, hi, Marissa. Hey. Um, pivotal year and gonna, this is uh also a pivotal year it's it's i feel like it, that's a nice bit of symmetry it is I'm, I'm gonna go alphabetical from b then well i've done this before and it doesn't go well but from b we go to g jeff gentis welcome to your first zoom with us jeff thanks tim thanks jay thanks everybody where are you fun. at what part of the country I'm in connecticut Connecticut. Oh, cool. We've never had anybody from Connecticut. We can mark that Where off in Connecticut, now. Haven? No, I'm up on the mass border uh, in between Hartford and Springfield. So, yeah, I was uh, 13 in 1991. And I think that's uh, it was really when I was able to start making uh, my own CD purchases and, <laughs> and so, uh, fond memories. Yep. Yes. And then we have... Let's go. H, H comes after G, right? Scott Hallgram. Hey, yeah. So, uh, 1991. Uh, I'm dialing in from San Diego right now because I wised up. But in 1991, I was in Minneapolis, and uh, uh, like a lot of you, it was a pivotal year for me. Uh, 16, turning 17, making a lot of my own decisions about music and coming into my own. I went for my own. Uh, Dirtball Suburban High School into a uh, arts high school that uh, defined who I am today, 
30 years later. It can't possibly be 30 years later. Can it? Please, God, tell me it's not. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. Uh, from north of the border, Mr. Johnny Hooper. Johnny, tell us, uh, were you of, of buying CD purchasing age in 1991? Most definitely. Okay. Thank God. 2016. Okay. All right. I want to know if anybody else was buying, still um, getting some cassettes here and there because they became so cheap by this point. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Got a couple of hands. <laughs> I, my, I had to stretch my money as far as it would go. So there would be sometimes I go to the store and be like, all right, I got enough for one CD and two cassettes now because the cassettes only cost whatever it was, $6.99 or something. Yep. This was the time I, this was the time I would keep getting like sampler cassettes, like albums or labels were, were putting out, you know, like six songs or whatever on their cassettes. Yep. Chip Midnight. I know for a fact that in 1991, you were probably buying a buttload of CDs. I was. 1991 was. We're getting them free. Yes, probably my my. It was the start of. Uh, it's probably the reason I'm here tonight. Um, I was a you know 1991 spreads across two school years, so it was one year ended in you know May of 91, and the next year started in September 91. Um, I started off the year writing for the Ohio State Paper as a sophomore, interviewing Joey Ramone for my first interview ever, and ended the year going to see Nirvana. And going from reading Hit Parader, Metal Edge, Circus, and Rip to reading Alternative Press and Spin. Um, so yeah, 91 was pivotal. Did, did Got my writing start and saw a, a ton of really amazing bands that year. Was that the famed uh, Stashes show or was it a different one? It was a Stashes show. Yes. It was, the, it, it, it was the year I interviewed Blind Melon. It was, yeah. A lot of things I've talked about on the show before happened. Yep. started in 91. Mr. Eric Peterson, what, yes. where were you at this time, 1991? So I graduated from Punk Rock High School USA in the spring of 1991. I was uh, 18 years old. And then I went off to as far away as I could get from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and still go to university in the state of Michigan. I went to Lake Superior State University uh, that August and um, stayed there for a year and a half. But uh, yeah, my, my friends and I were definitely into music. We watched Headbangers Ball. We watched uh, 120 Minutes. Um, my high school yearbook from that year, which came out in let's say March of 91, there's a picture of a kid in a Mud Honey t-shirt, if that gives you any kind of clue what <laughs> was in the air. I was not privy to that. Uh, we were still wrapped up in four years of having listened to uh, Metallica and the Red Hot Chili Peppers being the two massive bands in my high school. And of course, as always, the joke, running joke every year was that the school, the song for each year was Stairway to Heaven. So there was still a lot of classic rock floating around. Mm -hmm. And then I also have friends who have stories about running into bands like Soundgarden and Screaming Trees around town because they would all play here. So... Um, yeah, and it's definitely a pivotal year for a lot of reasons. Now, Chip, you mentioned giving up on reading Rip Magazine. Rip Magazine, as I recall, was actually one of the, the first of the big magazines to really zero in, in on the grunge scene and focus on them and were huge supporters. And they were uh, really a strange magazine in that 
yes, they covered a lot of metal and pop metal, but they also covered a lot of punk. I think their first issue had like Motley Crue and the Ramones. Yeah. I mean, early issues had, you know, Black Flag, the Dead Kennedys, and Poison and Warrant. So that's yeah, I actually think I think you're right. I think Rip was one that I that I that made the entire year. I think I read that the entire year. Rip is one of those magazines that I really wish somebody would put the whole archive up online somewhere or put out a, a ROM or something because it really did bridge that whole era. And it, I mean, I remember issues with Animal Bag and Paw and Soundgarden and, you know, right alongside your, your you know, your, your firehouse and your Mr. Biggs, which, you know, is a really interesting juxtaposition. Rip, Rip deserves a lot of credit there, um, including, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to distinguish the magazine from Lon M. Friend. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, uh, but I remember even to go back a couple of years in 1989, they were a magazine that said band of the year, album of the year is Faith No More, The Real Thing. And they went on that road, which was, I mean, to be clear, that was a big hit. But to go out and say, this is the direction that things are going I think says a lot about like where things went in 1990, 91, 92, and so on. I think they, yep. uh, they were clearly my uh, reading material preference at this time. And for those who can't imagine a world before the internet, I mean, it was like Rip, Rip was, they had at the beginning, they had, I think it was called, I don't remember what it was called, New Blood maybe, or there was like mm-hmm. a one page, there's like four or five pages that featured like a new band. And, yeah. and to Eric's point, like, you would see a, a South Gang, and then you'd see a Mind Funk, like these two completely opposite bands, and they were just spotlighting new bands. And, and like I said, there's no internet to go sample songs and stuff. So I used Rip a lot when I'd go to stores. I'd be like, I saw those guys in Rip in the in the Fresh Blood or New Blood or whatever whatever their their section was called. If we had enough time, I could probably run back in my archives and pull out a couple old rips and see what it was called. <laughs> well, they, nice. they, also, they also had one page where they reviewed demos. So bands oh, yeah. just starting out. And that's where I heard of bands like the Fire Ants, which was made up of Andrew Wood's brothers. And it, it wasn't a big write-up. It was just this band from this area. They sound like blah. Here's their mailing address if you want to try to write to them. That's cool. Wow. Hey, uh, last but not least... Whitney Beeler, and of course I messed up the um, alphabetical thing because I saw wit. Uh, it's, it's my own fault. I didn't. Put I my saw wit, and I thought W. Well, just, honestly, I was just you know I got like I said, new computer and no camera. I look like a real party pooper. But how did you? How do you got a new computer without a camera? I built possible? it myself, and I forgot to buy the camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I actually am not on camera because I don't want to see how I've been anyone to see me how i've been ravaged by covid uh no that's probably not a good joke to make um me and uh what did you post him today liam gallagher's hot uh, house was hot so he decided that he had covid or something yeah <laughs> uh, i gotta i gotta charge out of that yeah so 1991 yeah so how i was already 25 um minneapolis i think scott mentioned the twins won world series that was great um Actually, I didn't really prep anything because I was just going to listen. But uh, yeah, I, I fell in. No, I fell into the Nirvana thing and all of that. You know, I didn't care for Pearl Jam much, but um, got swept up by the whole grunge thing, of course. Yeah, I feel like um, I, my experience with this and and Jay, you probably have 
something similar in terms of this was the weird crossover year where I remember fall of I was a senior uh, fall of 91 spring of 92 and um, we had a lounge it was called the senior lounge in our cafeteria and only the seniors were allowed in there and it was had a ping pong table and it had a a, a, rec- a, a, a radio with a CD player and um, the only two CDs or actually only three CDs that got played for most of the fall were Nevermind and Use Your Illusions 1 and 2. It basically just went back and forth. Whoever was controlling the ping pong table would decide, you know, what, you know, what CD they were going to play. And that was pretty much it for the fall. And that kind of sums up, I feel like, a lot of this era, which is the the cross-pollination, not cross-pollination, but the the we think of the of the 90s as sort of like a dead end for 90s metal but it really or 80s metal but it really wasn't there was this long period where these things were happening at the same time and it uh it kind of culminated with that fall of 91 it actually culminated on September 24th yes <laughs> when uh nevermind bad motor finger and blood sugar sex, sex magic all came out on the same day so i have a question about that when did the singles for that drop because in the last couple of days thinking about this it suddenly occurred to me that in those days you'd listen to the radio and they would have the singles for these songs three four maybe even five weeks earlier than the albums came out or mtv would you know have the video and be showing the video a couple of weeks before the actual album came out and and you know that doesn't even occur to me in 2021 yep you know, because of streaming and YouTube and all of those things. But right. The, yeah, that's true. They would use MTV to kind of build up the album release and drive sales. And that, that was definitely a case for Guns N' Roses, right? I mean, I remember oh, yeah. the first video was out months and months before the records were. And was that first video tied into uh, Terminator 2? Am I re- it's True Lies, I think, right? No, no it was or Terminator 2 no, because no. Arnold comes oh, out. You're right. You could be mine. And, yeah. yeah. You could be a yeah. lion. <laughs> I know Smells Like Teen Spirit was released two weeks before. Yeah. Um, and that, I'm not sure about the other two albums. I, and, you know. Use, use Your Illusion and, um, and Ozzy's No More Tears came out on the same day because I stood at a midnight sale. For those, yep. Remember those? Those are all the week, uh, seven, September 17th. Oh, I share a birthday with an Ozzy record. It's an interesting, like, so I, I create a little timeline just to kind of visualize this because I wanted to get this straight in my head. And a lot of stuff I think that Eric and Scott were talking about on Patreon, really, you can see it, like, visually. Like, first off, the first half of the year, there's not as many releases. Like, so there's there's just less material, it seems, at least for the stuff that we're talking about. And then there's from the summer to October, a ton. Like, September just has a ton of releases. So there's just, like more stuff released, but there's a definite line where you see, you know, Great White and White Lion and Skid Row and Van Halen and David Lee Roth. They all put albums out either somewhere between January and July. And then none of those bands other than Guns N' Roses released anything. Like they just, what for whatever reason, like this release schedule, they were like all front load, maybe because they wanted to do summer tours because they were already established. And then they don't release, those established bands don't release anything except for maybe Guns N' Roses and Metallica. And then you get all of this new material from, you know, bands that maybe weren't as established or 
for whatever reason was pushed to the, to the last quarter or the third quarter of the year. And there's something about that potentially like where it's interesting to think about from a business standpoint, like how much of that orchestrated what we then experience is like this light going on, like this dramatic shift just between like how things were coordinated mm-hmm. because of you know whatever marketing and business schedules. And then I'm sure once they saw that success, we're like, well, shit, next year we're spending all our money on these bands. We're not going to put money back into the bands and, you know, that we put money in in January that didn't do anything. So if I can jump in here, that leads into one of the things I wanted to talk about. Uh, Lon Friend actually on uh, Headbangers Ball, this was his pick of the week. This is the Galactic Cowboys self-titled record. So the story is that the this album was delayed for nine to 12 months of release because Geffen, which is the label, wanted to put their resources into promoting the new Guns N' Roses and that once Guns N' Roses came out, this was going to be their big priority. So this comes out in August of 1991. However, Nirvana blows up and Geffen, of course, starts to switch gears. Now, this record has songs called I'm Not Amused, My School, Why Can't You Believe in Me, Captain Crude, uh, Someone for Everyone, Kill Floor, uh, Speak to Me. So there's a whole bunch of songs about angst and being a teenager and not fitting in and all of the stuff those grunge albums were about. Captain Crude is about the Exxon Valdez incident. Kill Floor is <laughs> the humanization of working in a slaughterhouse. So I, these- still, I still can't believe that band is on Geffen. I mean, yeah. they did nothing. They did nothing but had. They had nothing but bad luck. Them and King's yeah. X, their so. entire careers. And I'm like, I cannot believe the story behind that. I've heard that story too. So thanks for mentioning. So this that. is their single. I'm not amused. So they have a song about environmentalism and not fitting in a high school. And the single, and you, uh, you people, you, you got to go in discogs and look at the photos of this single. I mean, this is like like 1991 space age jets and stuff. This song is about how they're not amused with all of the Satanism that's in heavy metal. <laughs> all the fake, they're, they're, not, they're not like, you know, prudes about it. They're just saying it's gone too far. It's not funny anymore. It's not fun. And I'm like, well, they, 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 they kind of became prudes later. I mean, yeah, they did. They did. Yeah. But it's like, how can this be the single when you have all of that other stuff to pull from? So also the album production is, way too slick in my opinion i i feel like it could have been more raw but this is geffen obviously not knowing that nirvana was going to blow up that this was the old normal of you know um heavy metal that's well produced that's maybe a little bit off you know left to center these guys should have been uh you know touring with metallica they should have been with pantero who they were friends with but no they get sent out with Dream Theater, and I like Dream Theater, but wrong audience. I, I saw them open for Overkill. Okay. So, and Dio was another another one that they played with. And it's kind of like all of the marking decisions were wrong, and they never corrected from when things changed. And they could have been like, oh, let's go with the environmental song. Let's go with the, the you know, the one about the Exxon Valdez, because that's what Soundgarden and Nirvana and Pearl Jam are talking about not fitting in high school. Let's go with that song. No, they go with the, you know, the satanic panic one. So, 
The, uh, the other thing, I, and we'll get into it here, but just from a high level on the timeline that's interesting is that, again, in that first six months of the year, you do see a lot of like um, Jesus Jones and um, KLF and Saigon Kick and Throwing Muses. And like there's these bands where they're different, they're alternative, they don't quite fit. Some of them have hits but they don't quite break through yet. And some of them get another pass, like once September happens and then that all takes off. Some of those bands, like obviously Dinosaur Jr., now all of a sudden becomes a lot more relevant because even though, you know, Green Mind's a cult or favorite or fan favorite, it is not like the big MTV hit. The, like they get another cycle, some of those bands, because they basically catch onto the flywheel of alternative after September happens. But it's interesting, like, and we've talked about it in the past of just some of those bands like Jesus Jones is one that's, that pops to mind where it's like, okay, this is really different. And like MTV pushed it a lot, but then they never really went anywhere. And you're like, oh yeah, that, and they kind of forget that that happened. You're like, oh yeah, that was a thing. And I, and I would always get the timeline confused of like, was that late eighties or when was that? And that was like January to whatever, March of it, this year. You see, <laughs> that EM, EMF put out and yeah. unbelievable that year too. Yep. Was that also Soup Dragons? Was that period around then? As well, because I feel like there was all these like British bands that were sort of uh, hotwired or that whatever that album is. Yeah, Um, they they had a but it was like the KLF, EMF, Soup Dragons, Jesus Jones. They were all in this like they all had. uh, I didn't know what at the time, but they all had sort of this tangential connection to like Manchester with with Primal Scream and and those bands. And um, it was just basically built around like big beats and and hooks and stuff like that with uh, I, I totally coming out of you know left field because in the united states we have no idea that that's going on unless you're like really tuned in to ne- in 1990 and 1991 paying attention to that Be- this is before did, a lot of stuff when did the 808 states record that year come out was that first half or second half i thought i'd be curious know. to know or or like the mock turtles because they released their second album before they imploded. But that was all across the pond. So if, if I had thought about it, I would have looked at the 120 minute archive to see when some of these, those bands, because that's where they lived, at least on MTV, to see where they would have had videos played, you know, what months and what, what, you know, which ones. Jay, I don't know if you came across this when you were looking at the timeline. And I, I find this a little bit hard to believe knowing the way release schedules work like anything after October is usually at least back in the day was reserved for greatest hits or live albums. It was the, you know, Christmas stocking stuffer. Um, you know, don't try to, don't try to push out a new band at the end of the year, but I, I saw two different places. And I, and like I said, I find this hard to believe, but that, that live released mental jewelry on December 31st. Mm-hmm. That seems really weird for a band to release an album on the last day of the year. Like that. Was just, it, wasn't that an EP? Or no, was that a full album. That's a full they album. A, they had an EP around that time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the that's the date I'm seeing. And and there there was only one other December album that I found that would be relevant to what we talked about, which was Monster Magnet. I mean, there's definitely a drop off of like things built to September and then things peel back, which would also make sense that that all that material that was released in December then would have all of this airspace, basically, right? I mean, there's not a yeah. lot to do, program around. So it just gives them even more play because now a lot of other people were releasing things. What, what labels were those on? I want to say Monster Magnet was on A&M, but I don't know if that was 
uh, on an indie at that time, or was that their major label record? Uh, live, live was on Radioactive, I think. Okay. Which was a maybe an Interscope or Universal offshoot, I think. But actually, I I, I might be mixing that up. I feel like they put out their first album, but. And I think they did like a, a single or an EP that year that was more low key, like during the year, and then they yeah, put the record. Say Operation Spirit, maybe. But to your point, I think Eric, you made the point right. Like that that video was out probably in October. Mm-hmm. Caroline put out the Monster Magnet record. Okay, so Caroline was a major indie at the time. I don't know if they had ties to any majors. And I want to say that like White Zombie was on Caroline for a while, and I know the Misfits were somehow related to Caroline at one point. Wasn't wasn't Smashing Pumpkins on Caroline for? They might have been. Uh, I believe the first record is co. It's a co Caroline Virgin release. There it is. Can you can you f- confirm that, Mister Hooper, as you pull out the reissue edition of Gish? Uh, I can give me a second. While we're doing that, you know, Eric, with you mentioning the Galactic Cowboys is sort of a band that got uh, disappeared <laughs> in, in a way. Um, are there other bands that you guys uh, or, or albums released in 91 that you think flew well under the radar that probably deserved to get a, uh, a look? Uh, I see some heads nodding. Um, throw, throw some albums out there, folks, that you think, oh, this one totally deserves a second listen because people missed it the first time. I don't know that it was missed per se, but because it came out in the first half of 1991 uh, would have been overshadowed by Nevermind and 10 and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and everything that sort of hit, you know, September onward, as Jay mentioned, School of Fish. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked to learn that that record predated Nevermind because it it has the sound to it that suggests it was influenced by grunge in some way. But that that I think was an April release. And it's one of my favorite uh, albums to listen to. I know Three Strange Days got um, a bit of airplay and there was definitely a video associated with it. I have no memory of it. Full disclosure, I was born in 91, but I was two years old. So my digestion of 1991 was, you know, it's reverberations uh, many years later. <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's a great um, full album experience. And in the 90s, you know, you albums were really hit or miss, you could, you could get a ton of filler, you were locked into that format. And the just from the intro into Three Strange Days, the middle flows beautifully, and the the ending track, Euphoria, is one of the most beautifully written um, alternative jangly pop rock songs that I've ever heard. And I listened to that record constantly at the beginning of this year. So I associate it with like the, the couple of months right before um, the COVID lockdown. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's a year that the local in Columbus, Ohio alternative station CD 101 started, but um, it's, I don't even think it's a running joke. Like um, three strange days has topped their like their listener call in 
like even now, like you'll see um, on Twitter, on Reddit, you know, like CD 101's doing their top hundred of all times. And, and like everybody jumps in. Oh, I bet Three Strange Days is number one again. It's been like the number one requested song. But I, I, it's probably because when the station started, they got so many calls. And even like years later, probably the number of calls have decreased over the years. So it still probably ranks up there with a lot of a lot of requests just um, just because it was like launched when the station launched. Wasn't that Andy, one of Andy Mann, who used to be the programming director? It was like one of his favorite songs as well. Yeah, and they used to, my, if my memory serves correct, I, I feel like they almost felt like a local band. Like they seemed to play every time CD 101 did a um, any sort of special spring break concert or CD 101 day or in whatever event they had. I feel like School of Fish was in, in Columbus a lot. I never saw them on that tour. I, I didn't really get into them until um, the second record, but... Um, yeah, I mean, the only negative thing I can say about that album is that the, it suffers from not having real drums. I, I can't stand the sound of early 90s program drums or even late 90s program drums. I think the first Primitive Radio Gods record has the same issue. It's just this flat, soulless, um, like, blemish on an otherwise beautiful piece of songwriting and 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 uh and instrumentation but i do think it was criminally overlooked so i hope that it will inspire some people who listen to this episode to to go back and and spin it again yeah i remember that very clearly you know as being one of those songs again during that time period that radio at least cleveland radio picked up a lot it sounds like columbus did too and um it definitely stood out it didn't sound like anything else on the radio at the time so again, it was one of those examples. MTV was doing that with some of these bands that we're talking about previously, like that's Atomic Dustbin. I remember them like appearing on MTV and be like, okay, this is different. Um, so but definitely like signaled something was going to happen or something was changing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in Minneapolis, it was played all the time too. And let's see, when was it? Did somebody just say it was in April that that came out? That's that album? I yeah, think it April. was. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's like six months ahead of Nirvana, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting because it's it's got that feel to it, kind of. I don't know. That's a great album, though. I really like that one. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, but so, you know what? That opening guitar riff of that song, um, it reminds me of um, She's Got the Look. <laughs> you, you know, that is that rock set? Yeah, that has a Minneapolis connection as well. Yeah. Oh, does it? Well, it's, uh, it's somebody from Minneapolis went to Sweden. This is all apocryphal but what i remember is somebody went from minneapolis went to sweden which in and of itself is not a story but they picked up roxette's cassette came back gave it to kdwb tell me if you remember this at all whitney but and then and yeah 101.3 kdwb yeah yeah speaking of roxette their album joyride came out in 1991 oh wow that was on that was played constantly in m2 yes all the time I think I think other things that might have been overlooked is that you know we talked about in 1990 and 1991 there were so many there were so many irons music popular music had so many irons in the fire if you want to look at it that way and I think metal was going in a really interesting direction and Prong put out Prove You Wrong on September 24th and Corrosion of Conformity put out Blind on November 5th and both of those got again like huge push in in Rip both in advertisement and review and made a decent sized dent, but again, just, just got swallowed by everything else that, that happened in that year. But I, but I still go back to prove you wrong and blind. I think, did you guys review blind like 
way, way back in the day. Yes. Okay. Yep. And I feel like those are, those are various like representational for like where metal would go the rest yep. of the nineties. Yep. I think those two bands. So we, we've talked about it before, but the narrative for a long time has been that Nirvana killed, you know, Motley Crue. The truth is that Metallica killed Motley Crue and Anthrax and Pantera and every other, you know, dirgy, swampy, raw sounding metal band that came along slayed all of the poppy metal glam stuff. Yeah. They killed and they killed enough's enough. All right. Yeah, they were. <laughs> I mentioned strength as a hidden gem. Uh, more than uh, one person and, did. And yeah, that's I, a great album. That is an absolutely killer record, and it got wasted by. It's, uh, too, it's too long. It's too long. But it's, it's too long. Hard. You're right. They need to cut like four songs off. Yep. No, I, think, I think one of the stories of '91 is going to be that this this is the turning point also of bands like Enough's Enough. Or, you know, there's a whole list of bands that we could probably come up with that were pushed by their label to be the next Bon Jovi when they really wanted to be the next Motorhead. And finally, in 91, when you get Metallica and you get Guns N' Roses and you get Nirvana and you get Soundgarden, that all of a sudden the A&R people are like, no, 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 no. Let's let these bands do what they want because, you know, trying to be the next Motley Crue is not working. Could join the chorus for um, summer of 1991. Sorry, Johnny. Johnny. Uh, what happens in the summer of 1991 that precedes what happens in September? What happens happens in the summer? Anyone? Is it Lollapalooza? Lollapalooza. Yeah. First touring incarnation of Lollapalooza, kicking off the alternative revolution. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, you can't really. You play an MTV. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like, because we all—I think we mentioned some of us who were in high school. Like, you started the year, or I'm sorry, you ended the year one way. Then the summer happens, yeah. and you have this big Lollapalooza thing, and then you come back, and all of these records are then released. Yeah, it, I had never really occurred to me um, that that's the way it had. Because I was in a band at the time. I think it was my first band. Like, and we were like schizophrenic, trying to like. Some of us liked this, you know, the stuff we had talked about, like uh, like David Lee Roth and White Lion and stuff like that. And others of us were like more alternative um, already, like even before any of that happened, like in the industrial music. So like when that happened, it kind of made it so that we could all like get along better. <laughs> uh, just because you all had common, like we could all like get on the same page about Nirvana, right? We're all like, oh yeah, that's good. I like that. We could all get on the same page about Helmet. It's like, oh yeah, that song's really cool. Let's learn that song. Um, I think Tim so. has to be asked whether or not uh, Nirvana killed Road Apples in early 1991. <laughs> uh, right after that- Up to Here, come on, it was big. And then Road Apples, there you go. Then Road Apples got uh, wasted too. We'll yeah, blame it like, on them. Well, it, there's a, definitely a, a lull between Up to Here and then Fully Completely. Uh, Road Apples is a fine record, but it's not the advance that you would you would like them to make uh, as a as a tragically hip fan. Uh, Jeff, I, I you feel gonna... like it just had to be a jab there somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, there you go, Jeff. What were you gonna say? You gonna chime in? Yeah, I was just gonna say I had the uh, joining in on the school of fish course. I had this three strange days as a single, um, 
and, and yeah, it, it definitely sounded different. It was, um, and it just a weird, weirdly faded away. And I looked them up. They're an LA band. Um, at least the, t- the two primary members. Uh, I was a Ned's Atomic Dustbin fan where, you know, I think they got caught up in the scene trying to change their sound. And then, you know, I, I don't think they put out, you know, they put out about four more good songs after Godfather, but you know, Godfather is, is great. I, I struggled to try to think of comparisons for those folks who don't know it. I mean, they're double bass, but they're not exactly girls against boys. Um, they definitely have listened to hardcore, but you know, you don't compare them to black flag. So, but <laughs> there's melodic, they're angsty, but they're definitely, you know, they're not grunge. It's not, it doesn't sound like nevermind when you listen to that album. Um, so I'd say anybody, you know, listen to the first minute of Kill Your Television. And if that's, if you like that, pretty on point for the rest of the album. Uh, the other one I thought of, and it's another one where I struggle to think of at least of a contemporary comparison is Barbara Manning, where you might know her from the No Alternative compilation, got billed as Barbara Manning and the San Francisco Seals, um, which was, you know, a band she ended up joining uh, for a couple of years in the mid 90s. Um, she had a couple albums um, that, you know, they're now available as a double, but the one from 91 is One Perfect Green Blanket. Um, and it's, you know, with the double with their 89 release. Um, and that is, I think it's most like, in terms of newer bands, it sounds like Courtney Barnett, but without the cheekiness. Or, you know, maybe it's really like Trolleyvox. Um, even maybe in terms of a really newer band, Harmony Woods. Um, just like lo-fi indie um, singer-songwriter isn't quite the right way to do it, but she's got just kind of a quirky college rock thing going. Hmm. I don't remember. I have to go back and look at that comp. I don't yeah. remember her from that. Yeah, it's Joe Out was her, uh, or maybe it's Joey Out. I don't think I've ever heard it pronounced. J-O-E-D out on the uh, No Alternative comp. Hmm. I feel like I need to represent um, our friend Richard Waterman and uh, nominate Badlands Voodoo Highway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love that record. I know he loves it. He was up for a vote a couple of months ago. Um, It got got a couple of votes, but it is just like, maybe to Eric's point, like a band that was cast in a certain way, like, hey, why don't you guys be like, kind of like Bon Jovi? And I think they just wanted to be like, I don't know, just a 70s rock band, like blues rock band like a Led Zeppelin kind of thing. Yeah. And I think by this point they were just like, didn't know what to do with them. They just go make a record and they just made an awesome, raw, timeless, just classic rock record. Sounds great. Performances are fantastic. Um, that was one I had like, I remember at the time I was like, I don't know if this is going to be any good. Cause I kind of liked the first one, but I wasn't sure. So I bought it on a cassette <laughs> and wore the cassette out and eventually got it on CD. But, uh, Oh, do you still have the CD? I do. Yep. Oh, that's on my, uh, so I got the first one. I've, I've been on the search for the first one. So for those of you who don't know Badlands, it's Jakey Lee from Ozzy's band. And um, his singer, Ray Gillen, stepped in for Black Sabbath for a little while. And um, Ray ended up passing away of AIDS. And um, the story goes, the, the, the story goes that he, um, that his, uh, that he, that he had sex with women knowing he had AIDS. And, um, and so a lot of these women and their families have sued his estate. And so, again, the, the, the story, the rumor is that they won't re-release any of the albums because the families are blocking 
that. So like, if you have the CDs, they're worth a lot of money because you can't get them. Um, and that's a band that like I look in every thrift store. I look, I look everywhere I can hoping that it ends up somewhere because they're so hard to find. And I found the first one for five bucks at a little record store up near Ohio Wesleyan. Um, it was one of those times, I don't know if you guys, I am assuming you're all such passionate music fans that you do the same thing I do. Like I go to every record store I find and I was flipping through and I always look for Badlands. And I, I had a, that split second where I thought I was on like, uh, man, I'm dating myself, Candid Camera, that I was being punked. Um, Cause I pick up the CD and I know how hard it is to get. And it's got a $5 sticker on it. I'm like, this has got, they, they must've meant 50 bucks. Somebody, well, I'm going to take it up to the counter, throw it down. And he's going to go, Oh wait, no, that's a misprint. It's 50 bucks. And uh, I got it for five and I walked out and I'm like, I kept looking over my shoulder. Like he's going to chase me down. <laughs> and so I, I got it for five. I've been looking for for years. Cause I, I was like, you ten, or Jay, um, I had him on cassette and I still have the yeah. cassettes, but I don't have the CDs. Yeah. Was that at Pat's? Um, well, it's now called endangered species. Endangered species, yeah. yeah, yeah, yep. I know where that place is. So, to, to the point of Gem Records, um, this is another band I know I talk about a lot. So, Driving and Crying from Atlanta. It's been reviewed on the show. This is their lead singer's album, McDougal Blue. What happened is the president of the label said, "You guys need to stop doing all this folk and country stuff on your records." I'll tell you what. I'll let you do a solo record where you can do all that stuff so that your next record is just going to be all the hard rock stuff we're going to try and sell. So in the in January of 91 is released uh, Fly Me Courageous, which is their most successful commercial record, which they snuck one or two kind of slower tracks in on this record. But they have a pretty big hit with the title track. They have a bigger hit with a song called To Build a Fire, which I have a single for here. And this also has some live versions and some stuff off of their earlier albums. Now, their previous album had been um, produced by Peter Buck of R.E.M., who'd played on it and was friends with them. Uh, they were, you know, they had ties to um, the Black Crows, who are about to blow up. And they're a band that's being pushed as a metal band because that's what's selling. And then all of a sudden, towards the end of the year, all of the stuff they've been doing for four albums becomes massively huge, but because their label has spent so much time and energy pushing them as, as this current, you know, 1990 hard rock band, they kind of fell by the wayside. There's a pretty good documentary called uh, Scarred But Smarter, which is titled the first album, that's really focused on the band's history and them landing on the side of the fence that they didn't expect to be on in this whole change. Now... Fast can you, forward. Can you, can you open the? Can you open the? Is there a picture of the band? There, I, I'm sure there is. Because I remember getting into them because they looked like a like a bluesy metal band. So this is the picture on the and the liner notes. For, I mean that that could be that could be Danger Danger, right? Yeah. Could be yeah. a hair metal band. I mean, and I think that attracted me to them. But, but this this cover this album art is completely you know alternative. So flash forward to about two years ago, and one of the biggest selling artists of the 1990s has a massive hit covering one of their songs. So Darius Rucker covers one of their songs about two, three years ago and has a massive hit with it. Oh, I didn't know that, huh? Uh, hmm. This is another example of the labels not knowing what to do, not seeing the opportunity that they literally had in their stable 
out touring this massive record that that hit in the beginning of the year and just everything falls apart for them for a lot of reasons but you know the upshot is they're going today they're still a great band but uh, i think that fly me courageous which is not my favorite of their records the one before this mystery road is um is a, is a hidden gem that i think a lot of people should check out and in addition to being a great record it also is a good example of that bridge between what was popular at the end of the 80s and what became popular in the 90s they were they are they were interesting because um at least in, I don't know if uh, your local radio for everybody here, what it was like, but in Cleveland, it was very aligned to like what you would see in Rolling Stone. Like, like if Rolling Stone would write about the band, then the radio stations would play them. So that means like radio actually wouldn't play Molly Crew or Kiss or like, they wouldn't play the stuff on MTV really. I mean, the, the glam metal stuff, pop metal stuff. They would play like U2 or Bruce Springsteen or that sort of thing. So it was like very much like, if Rolling Stone didn't approve it, we're not. But for some reason, that band got through. And I remember that almost to Chip's point about seeing them and seeing the video and like, oh, these kind of look like the other bands. But like, why are they getting played on the radio? But like Bang Tango doesn't. Because to me, I don't hear the, I mean, at that time, I'm like, what's the difference? But like, for whatever, you know, they had a, a credibility. I mean, now I can understand a little bit better. But at the time, it didn't seem that different. But I do remember that, uh, again, being one of those bands kind of like the black crows like when you first heard them like huh this is different and yeah it had that southern bluesy country thing going on which maybe if that record comes out after uncle tupelo's record later on in the year or there's more momentum around the all country thing that suddenly all that makes more sense than it did um for them at, at in, in january i heard yeah. somebody mentioned i was just okay. gonna say speaking of uncle tupelo jay uh uncle tupelo took the opportunity when they were starting to get some publicity um, to <laughs> basically torpedo themselves. And they made in like all acoustic folk traditional record uh, as opposed to following up on their like, you know, Johnny Cash meets Dinosaur Jr. sound when they, they could have streamlined that and maybe gone a little bit more, you know, not commercial, but just inched more towards college radio. And they started covering like, songs that were sold they don't have songwriter credits they're just like traditional songs and uh they're singing about like atomic power and satan and the they're singing uh you know songs by uh um you know uh, folk artists from the 1920s and doing it with no electric guitars just acoustic guitars and and just absolutely going against the mainstream so that was uh it was an interesting choice on on their part I feel like 91, the overarching theme was new bands breaking into the popular consciousness that had a, a, a brand new sound like Nirvana or Pearl Jam, or it was established bands making some kind of hard left turn or doing something differently, uh, like U2, for instance, or R.E.M., you know, Often mm -hmm. Baby was such a, a weird thing to follow up Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum with. And R.E.M., even though they were, you know, a, a sizable, respected act at that point, out of time, like, if I'm remembering correctly, was their first, like, it was the first one that felt glossy to me. Uh, because I, I remember 
you know, my dad playing that album and hearing stuff like shiny, happy people, which admittedly is like kind of a, I don't want to say it's a joke song, but it was a sort of a theoretical exercise. REM writes a, a song for children, but that that's very different from the REM that proceeded up until that point. Yeah. Yeah. They turned down the guitars and definitely picked up new instruments and the mandolin try to write more, more of a texture record. Well, Metallica player. changed their sound. Yeah. I mean, they they stopped writing nine minute long, you know, multi movement uh, epics, and you know, made boogie <laughs> rock, made butt rock. They stopped. Well, they stopped writing about su- suicide and started writing about SIDS. So, I mean, <laughs> no, your, your your point is. I'm joking aside. Your point is well taken. Uh, I um, what what records? Uh, let me ask a, a couple of folks. Jenny Hooper, do you have an overlooked record from 1991? Something that you're like, I can't believe this didn't catch on. Uh, let's go. Besides with, Road Apples. Well, okay. we'll come back to Road Apples later. <laughs> uh, Neil Young and Crazy Horses Wells. I feel oh. like one of the best live records I certainly own. It's got incredible performances of all these stellar songs. Uh, the production is first rate. Weld. Weld people. Another one I'm going to go with is obviously Jesus Lizard's Goat. Please. Are you kidding me? Noise Rock at its finest. bandwagon-esque. That's an interesting one because is that overlooked? I feel like it has has sort of rebounded uh, in the popular consciousness. Didn't that win like album of the year or something? Yes. Didn't Spin give it to him? Yeah, it's Spin. Yeah. But what were the sales like in the US? Well, it came out in November, so they couldn't have been great. I mean, by the time they did that. Right. I just remember, I remember very, very clearly just because everybody expected like, oh, there's all this new music and we're all like, oh, it's going to be Soundgarden or Nirvana. And it was like, Teenage Fan Club. It's like, what? <laughs> I mean, I'd heard it, but it was like, uh, okay. Blur's first record comes out in, I can't remember what month, but that's another, that's another big one. So I would be curious to, uh, to hear from maybe executives at some of these labels that start seeing nirvana selling and they're like oh you know that band from england that we weren't going to try and push in the states maybe we'll try it now mm-hmm. or that little indie band we were going to try and grow over three albums let's give them a big push yep as opposed yeah. to those same label executives saying how can we write off this bang tango record or you know what's the uh what's the buyout on this uh you know mr big record I mean, keep in mind, all these corporations run quarterly. So, like, at the end of that quarter, you're talking about, you know, these that record had come out in September, um, December or January, depending on how what they use, is going to be the end of that quarter. The, those are the bands they're going to be looking at to say, like, okay, who's moving the needle? Where are we going to invest money this year? And yeah, I, I totally could buy that. It's an easy, it's an easy call. Like this stuff is selling right now, like a ton. We think we've got a bunch of other bands out there we haven't even tapped yet. Like let's go down that road as opposed to continue to try to sell. Yeah, Bang Tango's third record. But is, isn't that the story of 1992 that maybe we'll talk about in a year of let's scoop up all these weird little indie bands, yeah. 
and see if we can sell some ween or some, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who, who you know, the uh, Reverend Horton Heat or whoever it is. And that's how, how we start getting, you know, these, these little one hit wonder one offs from King Missile or, you know, I can't even, I mean, there's so many. And and, and like, what? if you think about like, you know, we haven't talked about Guns N' Roses much, but that was highly anticipated record, very successful. They toured, I don't know how long, it seemed like five years for that record. So, and one of the things about Guns N' Roses, the story always was that it's a double album because the label was afraid somebody in the band was going to die before they could make <laughs> yet, yet another record. So yeah. they wanted to get as much music out of them as possible. But they had become so grandiose. I think another way to think about it, if you're, I have a put your business hat on. It's like, am I, am I going to try to create another Guns N' Roses? Like that's not going to happen. Like that took a ton of work. Now they're this other thing, like playing piano and writing 10 minute long songs and releasing double albums. Like it'd be way easier to go sign a bunch of, you know, lo-fi garage bands that are young. So was the actual cold November rain really uh, Nirvana? The what? The cold November rain was that actually Nirvana coming in and washing it all away? <laughs> <laughs> Metaphorically speaking, yes. Um, were there records that I we know you know it, Chip talked about midnight going to the midnight sale for for Ozzy and and Metallica? Um, there are definitely records we anticipated, but were there records that you were anticipating and you were like, I can't wait to buy this, and then you actually got it? you know, right when it came out and you either immediately went, Oh, this was a mistake. I can't, I didn't like this. Or over time you've kind of changed your mind. You maybe you liked it at first, but now it's not become something that you ever revisit. Do you have any records like that from this era? And I will say I did buy the Pearl or the, the red hot chili peppers. And now I'm not a big red hot chili peppers fan. I think yeah. The, yeah, the, I have... <laughs> that has soured for me. I have I have both of those. Just to, to jump right on, yeah. Number one, yeah. Blood Sugar Sex Magic. I didn't like Im- like immediately. I was like, nope, pass. And it's like what, sixteen songs, seventy minutes. Anyway, but then I know this is going to be controversial with this crowd. But Eleven's Awaken a Dream. While I still think it has a lot of nuggets, songwriting wise, production wise. Um, I like I was gonna pick it for next week's review and I I just couldn't it was just too it just it just didn't it was just too plinky. It's that it's that thin Jack Irons drumming. Yeah. And so so their next You have oh, a thing for Jack Irons, Jay. You just hate him. So, <laughs> Man, he leaves a lot of open space. You gotta fill it. It's no, not it's the notes you play, it's, it's the notes you don't play. And, and I came I came to this podcast because I follow Alan Johannes on Twitter and he that's how I originally found this podcast. So so I'm a big <laughs> Alan Johannes fan and and uh, an eleven fan. But so, that album, while I can still enjoy it, does not it 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 didn't age in thirty years for me. No way, gotcha. Awaken a Dream is nowhere near the next one. Uh yeah, the self titled. Yeah. God, the self titled's in my, it's yep. on my top twenty all time. Absolutely love that record so much. I was going to talk. I was going to mention uh, Johnny uh, mentioned Ben Wagon esque. Also, I didn't want to lose my train of thought. That is like the weirdest that that was so popular. It, I mean, when does Jangle Pop win album of the year? Right. It's like they were just trying to grab someone else, some indie band that I mean, they were just searching. Right. It was like uh, 
Jay said, they were just trying to figure out what this quarter's hot band was going to be, I think. Not that Teenage Fan Club isn't great. It's just that it that they latched onto the mainstream for that little bit of time was crazy. Just crazy. I don't know if the first Saigon Kick, somebody mentioned them earlier, if it, if it gets, you know, it was the second record that had the big hit, the big ballad. Yeah. Um, I saw, you know, talking about the sea change and how everything was, was changing. Um, I saw Rat play at the Cleveland Agora, which is about a, what, 2,000, 3,000 seater, maybe. Um, yep. It's kind of like comparable to the Newport in Columbus. You know, it's a it's a old theater that holds uh, definitely under 3,000, probably 2,000 maybe would be my guess. But Rat was supposed to headline like the local, like probably Richfield Coliseum. And they weren't selling tickets. And so they put them at the Agora and they sold it as like this... Um, you know, special club show for this huge arena band. They're coming to play in your face, getting back to their roots. But the reality is they probably, I don't even know if they sold that show out, but Saigon Kick was a label mate and the record wasn't out and they opened. And I remember the singer, we were so mesmerized because he was like, he looked and acted like Charles Manson. Like he was just like making weird faces and staring at people and getting in people's, it, it was like, you didn't want to make eye contact with him because you were afraid that like he was going to, do something. I don't know. But, but I remember, you know, we talk about CDs and cassettes and that was still the day where you could go. Uh, I think Jay mentioned it. Um, you know, we had a ton of record stores at Ohio state and they would always put out the promo cassettes. And I remember getting the Saigon kick one for three bucks and promo cassettes always came out early because they were for print reviewers to review and get in time for publication. So like advanced copies of stuff came out. I mean, I got that probably two or three months before it. And it was like, again, like striking gold. Like the record store should not have been selling it because it was a promo copy for in-store <laughs> play. But they were, they sold all their promo cassettes. Um, and yeah, that album, that album was that weird, it was that weird alternative metal that Rip talked about, right? It was, yep. it was definitely not hair metal and it was definitely not alternative rock. It was somewhere in between. It was weird. Um, but I think that one really sticks out. There's two other like genres that I wanted to at least throw out to everybody. Um, there were a lot of bands that kind of came like my bloody Valentine kind of became like the bigger band, right. Of that kind of shoegazy kind of sound. But a lot of bands came out around that same time. I think my bloody Valentine's the one that got the attention, but like in years after 1991. So I didn't discover any of this stuff in 91, but I started dating this woman in 92 ish who read NME and melody maker. And she was really into that music. And, and like, I was not into it. So years later, um, yeah, like Swerve Driver, Chapter House, um, um, Primal Scream. Um, yeah. Ride. Yeah, like the, the Swerve Driver Rays, like when I was writing for the college paper, they were being put, like we got a copy of that cassette every week from the label. And I remember we just had a stack of Swerve Driver cassettes. And like I didn't think it was anything I was into. So like I, it took me years to listen to that. Um, so that's one genre, kind of the the UK, kind of the shoegazing stuff. Um, and there's this, this genre that I that I want you guys to uh, to tackle sometime are the the bands of like the 70s and 80s who were trying to survive in the 90s. And so the one the bands that came out in 91 were not the names that you recognize, but um, RTZ, which was the guys from Boston, put out a record. Uh, the Storm, which was three of the original members of Journey with a different singer. Uh, Shadow King, which was Lou Graham and Vivian Campbell, who was in Dio and Def Leppard. And then Foreigner put out a record with the first time that they put out a record with a different singer. And all those bands, I think, were yeah. they were still doing all those records sound like the bands that they sounded like. 
but in the 90s those arena rock bands like they weren't i don't think any of those records probably sold very well was that the same uh time of the second bad company with the different singer um i don't think they put anything out in 91 but yes yeah, all i just remember like bands that were like big in the early to mid 80s yeah yeah would like trying to reinvent themselves in the early nineties with new singers or different names or different formations. And even the sound, like the RTZ definitely sounds like Boston. Um, the storm kind of sounds like journey. Shadow King was a little bit heavier than foreigner. The foreigner record actually sounds like foreigner, um, but with a different singer, but I, I'm just fascinated by that kind of stuff. It's all that old, like what happens when the arena rock bands start playing clubs and do they change their sound or do they stick with their sound and, and who's going to those shows? Mm-hmm. Cause I wasn't going to see those bands. Well, yeah, it's like, it'd be tough enough. Um, imagine being like, oh, yeah, everybody knows the Janie Lane Warren story. Right. So imagine you're him. I think we've all like listened to that and thought, oh yeah, that would, that's kind of crazy. But imagine if you were like journey. Right. So it's like two, the generation before that, where it's like, well, shit, now I'm two steps behind. <laughs> like, what the hell do I do? Like, how do we make this work? Isn't that also the story of those, those seventies bands that weren't photogenic enough for MTV in the eighties? And, you know, another, you know, anyone's playing the Eric's on the show drinking game. This is also the era when we still have regional radio where you can have a hit in a regional market. This is long before Clear Channel or Infinity or what Cumulus comes along and homogenizes everything across the country. You know, this is also the era when uh, college radio is going from this kind of hippie free format stuff to being basically a training ground for alternative radio DJs. And there's much more emphasis on structure and now is the power pop show. And now is the alt country show. And now is the metal show kind of thing. So you're getting, uh, you know, I'm sure every label, every big indie label had like 30 stations at, you know, the state universities across the country that they could call and be like, so we want to push, whatever local, you know, whatever band in your local area and we're, you know, the four States around you, we're, we're focusing on that. And then we're going to grow from there. So I think with some of these older bands that you're talking about that while maybe nobody in LA wants to hear journey anymore, but there's definitely somebody in South Dakota that does, or somebody in, you know, I, like I said, I went to Lake Superior state university that was on the Canadian border and, you know, they, they were sure they were playing, you know, kickstart your heart still, but, we would also regularly hear the Eagles or Zeppelin or Deep Purple but, on those, those stations. I think, so, like, I don't know the history well enough to know if these bands were trying to reinvent themselves, but, like, does anybody know who The Storm is, right? The Storm, like I said, is Jonathan Kane, Greg Rowley, and um, Ross Valerie from Journey. So it's, like, three of the five original Journey guys. There's no Neil Sean. There's no Steve Perry. Uh, Steve Smith played drums on it, but they didn't use a Journey name. And so, like... I don't know if they were trying to reinvent themselves or if they thought like at least that point, like journey's not going to sell any records in 1991. So let's not even try to use that name. Let's try to do something. Like I, I, right. I don't know the yeah. history of that. Yeah. Or Steve Perry still owned the journey name and they were like, they can't use it anyway. I don't know. I don't know if they tried to sell that record as featuring journey members or whether they tried to go out on their own. Well, now, now it's interesting because there were some bands that did, uh, that were from that, early eighties and, and mid eighties era that were able to sort of slip through, uh, one of them being Van Halen. Now I know wit, you said that foreign lawful kernel knowledge does not stand up. Oh, <laughs> I don't really have any basis for that. Other than I'm calling I you treat, out. <laughs> I, I, 
I don't, you know why I, I called it out is because I don't remember shit about it. It just, it's uh, not. Pound cake? A, oh God, you know, the power drill thing, whatever. I mean, I just, I, I just, it doesn't stand out like any of the other records do. I don't think OU812 is exactly groundbreaking either, but I don't remember anything about for Carnal or whatever. I think it, uh, so I was except the name, the name is memorable. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm trying to keep right it now. It's a clean show. I'm trying to keep it clean. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> it was, uh, highly anticipated. I was a huge fan, right? So I was a huge era, uh, David Lee Roth era fan. And I kept waiting for a Sammy Hagar record to be great. So I kept, cut him slack every time. So that one at least sonically sounded better than OU it went to. Yeah. But I agree it, with time. A lot of that Sammy Hagar material does not age well. Like there's nope. a couple songs here and there where you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. Or musically it's cool. But often his lyrics are so terrible. Uh, uh, like Van Halen, what's the popular song on that right now? Is that the one that was such right, a- which yeah. had a a very um, oh. useful video in it, in that it's a like, um, uh, it was one of those videos that was a uh, uh, a political socio comment yeah. of the time. So and it's a little witty. It's a little smart, yeah. and it, so it was perfect for MTV to play during the day. Uh, constantly in rotation. The people, uh, they just it's get not actually that up. good of a song. Like if you just listen to no. the song, it's not that interesting. No, it's um, just, you know what? people you get read, all wrapped up in the message, and it's just you know, right. it's, just, it's just yawn. You, you mentioned know, but, that that song, and I have flashbacks to the rec room at my freshman college dorm that had the one TV with MTV on it, and seeing that video over and over. Mm-hmm. So did they use that for uh, Crystal Pepsi. They did. Yeah. yeah, there was a Pepsi. <laughs> this is this is a theme, right? Like the shared the shared uh, music that Tim had to listen to in the senior lounge, the rec room for Eric, right? Yeah. Like this is kids. You don't understand what it was like to have to share the the common airwaves, the sound waves in the room with That's your true. your fellow classmates. That's now you can just put your AirPods in and. So you never have to deal with anybody else's music. That's a, that's a bad thing. That is a net negative. And so fall off my lawn. <laughs> falling on Chip's comment, here's an album I did not expect at all to talk about. Released on the 4th of February, 1991, the final album from the band Queen. Yeah. Innuendo. So one of my best friends is a massive Queen fan, so I definitely heard this album. And... You know, then we finish out the year with the huge concert, you know, tribute concert to Freddie Mercury. So that, I mean, may, maybe more than any other band that, that was going to be challenged in the 90s, circumstances forced Queen to go out on a high note, if you will, forgive the illusion. But um, yeah, I mean, there there's a, there's an album that people don't talk about, but I, I don't remember it being bad. It had good singles from it. Uh, and, but it's definitely, you know, capping off a career. Well, and then also in February of 92, right around the corner is Wayne's World. So there's yeah. sort of like a queen era at the beginning of the 90s. And Bill and Ted's. And there's like yep. movie soundtracks and it's like yep. intertwining of that. But yeah, I definitely remember that Queen record. I remember it just being remarkable that they made it because I think it was pretty well known at the time that he was not not well. So right. I'm also going to think that that was maybe a record where they were like, we're going to do whatever we want because yeah. Freddie's almost done. So we don't need it's, to listen to the label. We don't need to worry about. Right. 
I think what's amazing to me is I'm a huge fan of the band. So like when I think back at that time, if you would have told me at that time, I mean, they were considered old, right? I mean, in 91, people were like, oh, they're an old band. Like they're probably going to retire soon. Like, and then he, when you find out he's sick, it's like, okay, well, they're definitely done. You're never going to hear any more Queen. To think in, in 2020 or 2019, they were still touring the world successfully and like playing those songs in a you know respectable way. Like that's mind blowing. <laughs> Just from an age standpoint to have thought at that time, if you told me in 30 years, this band is going to somehow continue to tour and put on a great show. It seems like they've always been a part of the cultural conversation for some reason, whether it was in movies. And then also, weren't they a part of um, rock band? Weren't they, didn't they have songs on rock band? I feel like a lot of bands got yeah. got a second life because mm-hmm. of rock band. Um, when we ever get to the 2000s and talking about uh, different years in the 2000s, uh, when that podcast launches, we're going to have to talk about the, the, the influence of MTV and radio on breaking bands is going to be just as important as revigorating bands. Thanks to, and video games are honestly like the first time I ever heard the hives was in a video game. It was in yeah. like a Madden football game. <laughs> it wasn't because of the radio. Yeah. So that'll be an interesting, uh, when we get to those, those decades. When we were talking about, um, um, I think it was Jay or Eric, when are you guys talking about the, how the, the record company started like, cycling out the stuff that wasn't selling and realizing that, that hair metal was, I think 92 was probably, there were still a couple bands in 92 putting out kind of their last major label record. So 92 really seems to me to be the year, but the one from a pop metal perspective that, um, that I still love from that era that, uh, that definitely got lost in the shuffle was danger, danger, screw it. Um, is that the name of the record? Is it the second, second record? Yeah. Now I got to look it up because now I'm all. Now I'm, I'll only know the first one. The second, I mean, those guys go for the um, everything they write sounds like they want to be opening for Def Leppard or Bon Jovi. Like it's just it's it's big hair. It's um. Well, while you look up, well, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but while you look it up, I, I feel like there's there's still a lot of really good stuff in hair metal going on in 1991. I mean, we had uh, I'm not familiar with that Danger Danger, but we talked about it enough to know. Uh, Bullet Boys had a good album yeah. that year. Oh, yeah, freak show. They, and Bang Congo, Dancing on Coals, I think is a fine record as well. Um, I listened so, to both again, of them. This, this amalgamation of weird stuff going on in there. Dick Tracy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of no stuff more rules. that yes. was good uh, that just wasn't reinventing the wheel and wasn't contributing to the conversation that was being had at that moment that conversation being dictated by, steered by grunge. So if you had great hair metal albums, or in my case, as a power pop fan, if you have a a record like Blow Up by the Smithereens, which suffered the great misfortune of being released two weeks prior to Nevermind, uh, a a power pop pop bands like their attempt at being the least edgy they've ever been, the most glossy and produced, um, those are genres that sort of by virtue of how they do themselves are pre- preclude too much innovation. Like, I feel like Power Pop didn't figure out to, how to really reinvent itself until after Nirvana. Like, you wouldn't have even, for instance, a Fountains of Wayne 
or an Owsley or any of these second wave power pop bands, if you didn't have Nirvana's influence, they would just fall flat on their face. The posies. Yeah, right. So like they, they needed that that sort of rough around the edges integration into their sound to re-enter relevancy. At the time, you know, they were just trying to hang on. How, how do you maintain your, maybe you're not gaining fans, but you're, you're maintaining your base. You can kind of hear that with uh, Material Issue, can't you? Like, cause that record was released in January, I think. And it's a lot, yeah, you can hear January. them having like a, in a post Nirvana world, that record having a different Is that edge. the one that has, are you a boy or a girl on it? I think that has, isn't that Diane on it? Isn't that International okay. Pop yeah, Overthrow? I get them confused. I think that's international pop overthrow. Is Valerie loves me. Oh, okay. That's how oh, Valerie, yeah. Yeah, yeah Valerie that's loves it. me. That's it. it. That's it. That's the one. I, yeah. I think this all plays back into what I was saying at the very beginning about the Galactic Cowboys and the marketing of the songs, because so many of those hair metals uh, albums really wound up being great, you know, like glammy power pop records. But the singles that they were pushing invariably were these, these uh, power ballads, which were just overblown and over overplayed and i think that if some smart executive had been like hey this is really great like like grungy dirty sounding and not grungy like seattle but like not perfectly produced like pop song on this poison record or this you know motley crew record or danger danger or whoever that they could have pushed a lot more units of a lot of those records and just said guys get, get rid of the get rid of the hairspray just Put, you know, dress like in your jeans and your leather and focus on, you know, these songs that you're already writing that are talking about the environment or that are talking about addiction or teenage angst that we haven't been pushing. It's funny there, that, you, that you mentioned that because now that I think about it, there, there's such a commonality between like hair metal and power pop and you wouldn't think that it's there, but it is. Uh, the just the the straightforwardness of of the melody, um, the lyrical subject matter that's kind of horny and boneheaded. They they both were kind of gauche in the '90s. They felt dated. Um, and I think I think Tim was it you who said you got the. Uh, the, the Doug Broad book that was just published on Kiss, Cheap Trick. Jay was listening to that. Yeah, Jay, I, I'm listening to it now. Yep. Yeah, and and Stars mm -hmm. and Aerosmith. Like that that centering of um, melody that ultimately has its roots, even if the instrumentation is more aggressive and louder in like 60s Beatles pop harmonies. Um you know, I, I there, there, there's an overlap there that I, I would, you know, if if I had had fewer glasses of red wine, I would like to speak more eloquently about <laughs> on some well, future. I think all those bands that you're talking about, they all go back to Cheap Trick, Kiss, and yeah. Stars, and like those bands of the '70s that did very much meld and kind of form power pop, and then it broke into these other things, depending on like you know, what vein of it you were into. Um, and sometimes, I mean, enough's enough's a good example of a band that put it back together again, but how many stories have you heard? Times. I don't know if you guys saw the, the BG's documentary, but, and they said something in that, 
that I think um, I've heard, I've heard warrant, I've heard so many stories about this over the years of sending a sending a single to a radio station without labeling it. And then getting the feedback. And I think Warrant was one, right? When like the dog eat dog record, which was a little bit heavier for Warrant, it was it's always considered Warrant's grunge job, which I don't hear that, but I think for the non-fans, maybe it is. But like they sent out, you know, Machine Gun as a single, but they didn't say it was by Warren. It just said, We're working this new band, check it out. And these these, you know, the, the story is always at the radio stations were like, we love this. And then they're like, Oh, you know, that's Cherry Pie Warrant. And like, oh wait, oh no, I didn't know that was the same band. Like <laughs> Um, and they talk about that in that BG's documentary too, how they were just sending stuff out because they didn't want reputations to, to uh, precede uh, the influence and, and the thoughts and opinions around a song. So um, Eric, I think to your point, like sending out some of these songs that, that could have been and should have been hits, but maybe they had some baggage behind them just because it was that band or whatever. I think uh, like Tesla was pretty popular in 91, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. Like, is it the I five they were acoustical on the, jam? Era? Yeah. No. no, I think it's yeah. Psychotic, it's, um, yeah. Yeah, it's psychotic, psychotic supper. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. They were Which all are, over the radio. So they were kind of an oddity. Yeah. That record came out a month before it came out in August. Um, okay. It might be one of their best, but then, yeah, then, then they did the acoustic thing, which took off in a whole well, different way. That was the whole MTV unplugged craziness that went on. Right. That was part of that. I would imagine. But to go back to reading about bands, like they were a band, like I remember I probably read about them for at least a year, if not two years before I ever heard them. Yeah. Because they would just be written about like in Rip or whatever. Like everybody would always write about them because they had, they were known for like not having an image. They were like mm -hmm. the first band to be, didn't care what their image was. And uh, that was like the, the storyline that everybody would write about them. And I would just imagine what they sounded like. I was like, oh, they must be so cool because they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, you couldn't listen to them like there was no listening boost i didn't know I a friend I, who had the cd i, I think i the, heard that they're like i remember a story that their lead singer tesla's lead singer was he was he used to drive his semi truck and he'd practice singing or something like that and that's how he got to be yeah. such a great singer or something like that some crazy story like um, that as a matter of fact uh, you mentioned power ballads earlier when i put out the power ballad book in 2013 i, I interviewed jeff keith um for uh a podcast i did a short run podcast for the book and he mentioned that that he would sing in a whatever truck he was working in like it was it was a industrial truck not a semi but you know like a backhoe and he that's what was his day job and he would sing in the truck i thought so i scooped you tim but i guess not yeah um, you guys know just a little uh, sorry a little tesla trivia um if you know tesla do you know the song little susie mm -hmm. of course yeah did you know that's a cover? No. No. <laughs> Why'd you do that? I, uh, <laughs> I didn't want to know that. I think I learned that last year. Um, Jeff dropping the... Uh, so did Five Man Acoustic Jam, Acoustical Jam come out in 91 or it was just in the top 291? I'm looking, I'm looking. That one didn't come, come on my radar. So uh, that, so. I'm seeing 1990 that that came out. So it, it, might, yeah. it might, maybe it was late 90 and then it, it charted in 91, which That's is another weird phenomenon. Yeah, it came out yeah, in the, is, on the this, 13th of November. Part of that whole, is this part of the whole, what's my timeline? Like I, I lump the, that in with the Mr. Big and the extreme and the like clapping, <laughs> the black. It was and 90. White, like, I think um, that was 90. Yeah. And some I of those know, songs, like um, 
silent lucidity yeah. and some a lot of those like later power power balance i think carried over from 90 through the year even though they weren't released sure. mm. we're not talking about them but i'm the album got released in 90 but the single got released maybe in 91 yeah i'm pretty this sure like we're all late, this is late also 1990 on signs this this is also part and parcel of growing that song from a region to like two regions to three regions and then you know the promotional time was was had a much longer tail and i'm sure yeah. had you know you're going from we'll do this section you know we'll these guys are already big in pacific northwest so we'll do that and then we'll bring in the mountain the inner mountains and then we'll bring in the plains and we'll try and break them in georgia and then eventually you know it it gets it grows so big that the rest of the country can't ignore it right um, Jay, you mentioned about the the first half of the year sort of being a, a, a different period from yeah. the fall. One of the records when I was looking back at this timeline that I remember it, I remember the videos on MTV and I remember this sort of like weird, um, you know, there was a, 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 a starting to uh, getting a vibe of like um, – of a nostalgia for the sixties and seventies, you had like dazed and confused and stuff. And one of the artists who was sort of riding that was Lenny Kravitz. And he had a hit mama said came out in April of, of 91. Um, and I remember the video for ain't ain't over till it's over. And like not really knowing what that was like, that was a, such a weird song compared to, you know, what was big, which was EMF and, and in terms of videos on MTV. And then, and then the, you had like Jane's addiction, we had a video on MTV and, and that stuff. And this is like this string driven soul song essentially. And I remember getting the record and like slash plays on always on the run. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. Slash is playing on this song. <laughs> is this alternative? Like it, it, it was such a weird boundary crossing record. And he seemed like, like built for MTV, like this just like incredibly good looking guy plays guitar, dresses cool, you know, cooler than anybody you've ever seen. And, um, you know, has this... I actually want to leave the call right now and listen to that guitar solo, by the way. <laughs> You're making me want to listen to that record. Oh, my totally God. That guitar that solo is existed. so awesome. Oh, man. Yeah. And I don't feel like I, I for me personally, what happened with Kravitz with like the American woman and that song like all over radio just murdered my appreciation for him um, that I feel like I need to revisit some of those records. And then, you know, like following like what's this 91 and then 92 uh, are you going to go my way comes out. So he just, he immediately follows it up with a massive record that sold like multiple millions of copies. Thanks yeah. to that single. Yeah. But he just um, got a rap as like, Oh, he's just so uh, derivative. That was the big thing then. As soon as he got popular, people started saying, all the critics said, well, you know, he's just he's just doing the same old stuff everybody else has been doing, and there's nothing original, and he got screwed. Did they say that shit about the Black Crows? Yeah, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> well no, awesome. because... Yeah, nobody says that about the hmm. white artists. It's, yeah, I was going to say, exactly, what's different there? I was going to say, that's bullshit. <laughs> no, in the yeah. beginning, I remember a lot of people, you know, bagging on the Black Crows for, you know ripping off the blues and you know in the very beginning there was a lot of people well, that, that were talking also about a bunch of shitheads like they're just obnoxious people it was a lot of rolling stones like they're just they're just a wannabe rolling stones yeah was a lot of that they've just they've listened to uh to you know 
um uh what's the record i don't think sticky fingers you know over and over again and they've made this and their and their first single is a cover of an otis redding song so, so the other thing the other thing is that this is an era believe it or not listeners if you weren't there when the beatles and the stones were not as revered as they are today where you know across the not with the exception of their original fans and a, and a hardcore fan base they were not the anointed you know, uh, kings of rock and roll that they are today. They weren't as active, right? I mean, the Stones weren't, didn't well, release anything on here. But they, they were, you know, a lot in a lot of ways, they were seen as the, uh, you know, music for boomers. You know, that that's, you know, um, that that was a lot of in the end. Now, there were a lot of fans and there were a lot of Gen Xers who listened to those bands, but they were not the you know the ultra revere so they were to you guys what like how to dismantle an atomic bomb you two was to me and my cohort when i was you know in high school maybe yeah that's funny like i eyed with some measure of suspicion although well I yeah because you too i, I, I were... had a discussion with a friend in college we were both king's x fans and he's like well king's x isn't popular because they sound too much like the beatles and people don't like the beatles these days Weren't the Beatles putting out those um, rarities records, like the double albums where they were like basically well, writing new songs around vocals? That was, that was a few later. years later. Oh, it was okay. a few years later? Yeah. yeah. To, but to Eric's a, point, I think there was a gap there where it was yeah. like, wait a minute, this stuff's not cool anymore. And then there became an appreciation of like, no, 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 it is cool. But like between like, I mean, if you even look at, I'm looking at the Rolling Stones catalog, they didn't do anything between 90, 89 and 94. And I yeah. don't think the Beatles catalog was being touched. I think maybe they did like past masters at that time, like maybe some remastering of things, but like well, there a lot wasn't of was a, shifted over to CD. Yeah. There wasn't like any curation of the catalog or keeping the band out there. And I also think culturally there was this, yeah, transition. Yeah, it felt remember, like it was going on. I remember hearing ads for like Beatles seven inches on talk radio. Like it was, it was a weird time. Yeah, and with yeah. the Stones, I presume it was still um, touring. I mean, my first ever concert at, at age six was, I think, Voodoo Lounge. It may have been. It was that or Steel Wheels. I don't. I don't know what. Uh, no, Steel Wheels was was accompanied 80. with an album release, wasn't it? Dirty that was eighty nine. Okay. Was eighty nine. And Voodoo and, Lounge yeah, was so, uh, ninety four. And Steel Wheels was was roundly uh, roundly joked about by. And, yeah late night television host comedians because of how old these guys were. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I don't even think that, I mean, this is a period of time where I don't know that even Zeppelin was cool anymore. Like there was a little span there. It was like, like, you know, in Pearl Jam, right? I mean, the, the notoriously their first record sounds more like Zeppelin than it does what they sound like now. And I think even they were like, no, we want to sound like Neil Young, not Zeppelin. Like, or you know whatever we want to sound like fugazi not zeppelin um so there was definitely a period in there was like rejection of the 70s until we got a couple years through it and then it was like oh no kiss is cool now and cheap trick is cool and oh you know page and planet are out touring that's that's kind of cool and like all that stuff got re-kicked um kind of back into the, the being acceptable i guess so what's that's crazy that box is set? Is that what it was? It's like 90, is that 92 when the Zeppelin box set came out? Cause I mean, we were talking about, so stairway to heaven was still 
had staying power. Mm-hmm. 92 and 93 was that four CD box set. So, yeah. yeah I, that was a key. Yep. I think that was, that was also a, the, the era of the Aerosmith box set came out, and that was really big in the, co- with the college crowd. Pandora's box? Yeah. Yeah. I love that box set. Uh, so what's That's cra- 91. Yeah. What's crazy is in looking at this top Billboard album, uh, uh, top 200 of 91, how many of the albums came out in 90, which shows you the power of MTV. And radio singles, right? Like Warren's Cherry Pie on this list is number 21. And that album came out in September of 1990. But, you know, Cherry Pie, the single came out. What other singles were on that? I don't That's one of my favorite records. I can't even think of was, I saw Red on that one. Yeah. Um, it was Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I have a very distinct memory of going to my college orientation and the guys across the hall from me blasting that over and over all night long. So again, having to listen to other people's music. But they're like a top, you know, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, they're probably a top five, maybe a top three band for me ever. Um, um, but, How but, long was that charting? What's that? How long were you saying that that was charting? Well, I mean, it made, it made, it was number 21 album of 1991 and it came out wow. in September 1990, which means it sold enough copies you know, it sold, I'm sure it sold out of the gate. It sold a ton of copies in September through December, but then to sell that many more to end up at number 21, yep. you had to have been pushing singles hard and pushing touring hard and pushing MTV, like that Uncle Tom's Cabin video probably. I, I don't remember the, I don't remember how the flow went, right? But Cherry Pie was a single and they probably rode that through the end of the year and they yep. probably did a tour around that song. And then they come into the new year and like for the next quarter, it's going to be Uncle Tom's Cabin and then go out on a headlining tour. Um, I mean, I saw that, I saw that tour that, that summer, now that I think about it with, it was a triple bill with um, Trickster and Firehouse. And they played a, they played a Blossom and it sold out in like 10 minutes. Don't Blossom treat me cool. bad. What a song. For those, yeah. for those people, for those people listening, you should put this in the show notes. There's a link we've linked to a billboard. It's crazy. I, the Razor's Edge is number 12. I mean, I don't mean to get hung up on this list, but that's nuts. Well, Queensryche at number number nine. Oh, it's 1990. Funny, and I, I love that album. Don't get me wrong. That and once again, that's another metal band that was talking about the environment and talking about you know a youth issues and angst and all of these other and things. Law enforcement. I mean, God, listen to that song now, and it's like, oh God, listen to it in the wake of the summer protests, and it's yeah, just atrocious. But again, that, that's a that's a huge carryover because it came out that came out in 1990, right? Yeah, yeah. And I that was my second. So I interviewed Joey Ramone first, and then Michael Wilton from Queensrÿch okay. second, and that was spring quarter, right? So five at least you know five months into the new year is when like Silent Lucidity became the hit single, and again it rode them into the top 200 albums of the year, even though the album was at that point six months, seven months old. Do you remember what their next release was? Jet City Woman. Was it the Promised Land? No, no, no. It was Operation Live Crime, which was a box set, live CD and video of them doing their Operation Mind Crime record, (laughs) which once again is another record talking about corruption in institutions and drug addiction and all of this stuff that all of those other Seattle bands were talking about. From a question for people who actually lived it um old people you or, well not, not yeah yes for the for the old people um uh <laughs> how bifurcated was 
the U.S. and U.K. market. I, I mean, for me, my huge 1991 album, second to School of Fish, is Screamadelica. And I'm wondering how on everybody's radar that was or how much Madchester and, and you know, the points where rock music was starting to intersect with dance music as, a, as it really was in the UK scenes. Um, was that something that was getting attention? Was that something that you guys remember clearly? Yeah, I, I kind of remember um, not liking Jesus Jones or EMF, but I liked I liked the Happy Mondays. Remember that song, Step On? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved that. And I think um, I was all over the Soup Dragons for whatever reason. Um, but I, I think it was, yeah, it was in that weird spot, just like hair metal. It was like, it kind of came and went right at the beginning of 91, I think, um, if I recall. But that's... And yeah, I it, felt it, like it, it was, was. I was buying. I was buying that stuff before. The I, like, whole I think thing the broke. Charlatans were already like. I don't. I, I can't remember when the only one I know came out. Nineteen ninety. Yeah. So that was what that was already out there. My experience was a for that type of stuff. You would you you could get exposed to it through MTV, but at least my local radio was not touching anything like that. Yeah. I mean, that- Following on that, I was going to say 120 minutes was really the thing. Yeah. Mm. 120 minutes was where you would see British bands, except for the metal bands, and you would see that the night before in Headbangers Ball. Um, I, I will oh. say I, I pulled up a Modern Rocks track billboard chart from the week that Nirvana's Smell Like Teen Spirit went number one. It actually went number one in November. Um, so just after the record came out, when the record came out the 17th or the 24th, Jay? 24th. 24th. So on the 23rd, the, the chart for weekending, November 23rd, is when Smells Like Teen Spirit went to number one on the Modern Rocks track, which is compiled from commercial radio and college radio. Number two was Moving On Up by Primal Scream. Now, I don't remember that. Like, I don't remember a video. I wasn't in college yet. Uh, maybe it was played on 120 minutes. Mysterious Ways by U2 was number three. I totally remember that. Yeah. Give It Away by the Red Hot Chili Peppers is number four. There's No Other Way by Blur was number five. And this is in the U.S. This is a U.S. chart. Then there was a band called The Shaman or The Shaman. And they had a single at number six called Move Any Mountain. I I don't know what that is. I've never heard that. Um, in excess I think it's Manchester. Sh- okay. So like in the vein of... of uh of primal scream um in excess is shining star was number seven u2's the fly was number eight so they had two in the top Dude, ten you had two songs in the top seven wow that album was ginormous yeah that was that in i in my opinion still the best album of 1991 um erasure's love to hate you was number nine and then number 10 was the pixies letter to memphis that's your top 10 the week that nirvana goes number one in the and also in that top fifteen was the Globe by Big Audio Dynamite, which again I place. I know they were an established band; they were not a new band at this point. Um, although this is Big Audio Dynamite two, not Big Audio Dynamite. This is the sequel band, um, but they I place them in the same vibe as Jesus Jones, as Soup Dragons, EMF, KLF, all those bands. And I honestly I heard that through friends. Like I don't remember the radio playing that because I lived in Cleve, a suburb of Cleveland at the time. Um, but I remember, and I've, I've joked around with Jay about this. I had a friend who had a, uh, 1991 red Fiero, Pontiac Fiero, and he would pop the Kasingles in and he had like the Kasingle for Jesus Jones, the Kasingle for EMF. 
and that's what we we would we worked at a grocery store together wait so he was like you'd have to put that tape in listen to the one song would it auto flip or you'd have to pull it back pull it out put another song in yeah see well he had yeah it was a single so you'd pop it out was that your it, job as the passenger to swap the cassette dude controlled his radio let's put it that way he did not a lot of work I, not, I never bought the, the cassette singles but i'm just thinking about that like trying to drive around every song you have to take the tape out and mm-hmm. put another one in that's insane that's, think about the stupidity of singles of, of one song <laughs> yes <laughs> by the way i do have the silent city single down in my basement just saying I might, I might have the Jet City Woman one around here somewhere. Yeah, but you, you got to dub all those on a memor on a ninety minute Memorex. <laughs> you, yes, exactly. That's the way to go. So in prep, in prep for this, I, I did a, a you know, a glance at, at nineteen ninety one and like a, an album, a band to me that was sort of a one, two, three hit wonder, um, but whose album, oh boy, I'm gonna have to look up what year it was. They they put out another record, the Thompson Twins. Mm-hmm. Right. They just had a couple singles, but they put out a record in 91. And like, I was trying to find this record to talk about on this, on this. It was like, to me, a surprise. Like, I didn't even know that album existed in 1990. It was, I think it was called Queer. Um, I knew nothing about that record, but I've been listening to it the last couple of days. And it's like, I, don't, I really like it. And they put out another record that I got for a buck at a used bin. I got to look what up, what it was called. But um, I mean, I like the Tom, even though I was a Headbangers Ball guy and a grunge guy. Um, I was I was into whatever MTV was telling me I should be into. Um, I did like I did like um, singles. What is the route? Why are you looking that up really quickly? Big trash, nineteen eighty nine. Sorry. Okay. Speaking of new wave bands putting out albums in nineteen ninety one, one of my favorites, Men Without Hats, put out a record that it you know where they're known as this this great kind of fun synth pop band. Personally, I think they're more like a like a lighter Canadian Devo. They put out a guitar heavy uh like rock record that was they say was inspired by what they were hearing come out of the Pacific Northwest. It really didn't do much and lost them their their deal with their label. That uh it's not a great record and it's not one that I've necessarily gotten into, but it's one that I'm always interested in re-listening to to try to like decode where they were going after you know doing things like pop goes the world you know right right it's one of those how did this happen yeah Yeah. jay you mentioned the pandora's box and i completely forgot that this happened but sweet emotion was a single that year like because of pandora's it made it in the top 40 again in modern rock radio because of that pandora's re-release or big pandora's release and then the re-release of that single so after they had just had multiple singles with Pump, Aerosmith was able to stay relevant um, up basically up until the next Get a, when Get a Grip came out because of, because of that box set. Well, what's funny is that box set is all the Columbia material, so it doesn't have any of the stuff that was just a hit. So yeah. Columbia was able to like dip back in and say like, "Hey, thanks Geffen for making this band huge. We're going to come back and now resell." all the old shit <laughs> but it, was way, it was a way to sell all that stuff to gen xers who maybe didn't hear it and yeah I'm, yeah yeah, yeah. like me like i was like got into them in the 80s and then i had heard some of the columbia stuff from the 70s but like when i got the box set, i was like this is literally everything plus all of the jam sessions and like just everything they had done on columbia basically was just all on that box so it was it was amazing 
Um, don't, I, don't, I, don't underestimate the impact that video had on that song being huge too, right? That was the one where it was like basically a phone sex call. Was it? That's my memory. Is that it starts off with somebody calling a fantasy and then at the end it's some, you know, mm -hmm. some woman at home, you know, she's older, she's Oh, she's that's happy. right. She's she's heavier than the fantasy and she's got kids running around and she's maybe ironing or something like that. I forgot about that they did a video for that. Um I wanna throw some some mentions out there from our our uh, folks on on Patreon. Um Jay mentioned Richard Waterman bringing up uh, Badlands. He also brought up some other uh, favorite albums of 91, The Cult's Ceremony, Grunt Trucks, Inside Yours, Honeymoon Suites, Monsters Under the Bed, uh, In Excess, Live Baby Live, Junkyard, Six Sevens and Nines, LA Guns, Hollywood Vampires, Little Angels, Young Gods, The Orb, Adventures Beyond, Osric Tentacles, not familiar with that band. Stranglitude, uh, Saigon Quicks, Saigon Kick, School of Fish, The Scream, Let It Scream, uh, Swerve Driver, Talk Talks, Laughing Stock, and Violent Demise. Some of them I've not heard. I got to Talk Talks, one of those bands where I always think I got to go back and re listen to more of their stuff because I've only so, given it a cursory listen. Did you see, was the last one Violent Demise? Yeah. That Do is that one you, um, Am I allowed to say that I found it on a blog somewhere and I downloaded it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the... <laughs> I found it on a blog and I downloaded it. It is, um, oh god, it's um, Oni Logan who was in Lynch Mob, and Rowan Robertson who was in um, Dio's band. He was like Dio's young hotshot guitar player after mm -hmm. Vivian Campbell left. Um, I, I read about it somewhere recently, and uh, like I don't know that it ever got released commercially oh so just like a promo release i don't know like i i had never heard of it and it might have been because it was kind of i'm trying to look it up right now um i think uh richard might have slipped me that record too <laughs> <laughs> maybe hey, it was it's not blog, so we're not you know. maybe, maybe i heard about it through you guys I, I i read about it in not so long ago and i was like i've never these are guys that are in bands that i know that i've never heard yeah. of the project before um, some other ones from the Patreon page, Gabriel Gutierrez mentioned Jesus Ghost, Jesus Lizard's Goat, as uh, Mr. Hooper did. Um, also mentioned some great noise rock records that came out. Uh, Peace Ticka by The Cows, the self-titled debut record by Unsane, King of the Jews by Oxbow, War on Everybody by God Bullies, The Unclaimed Prize by The Mark of Cain, who we've covered. Uh, other notable releases, White Light from the Mouth of Infinity by Swans, 13-point program to destroy America by Nation of Ulysses and Steady Diet of Nothing by Fugazi. Some good picks. Carl F. mentioned um, that Out of Time is his favorite, but uh, he gave a shout-out to The Orb, uh, which he found um, uh, on Napster years later. Um he also wanted, he also mentioned, and uh, you know, this is not necessarily stuff that we cover, but this was a, a year where I started, I think, paying attention to more than just rock. And part of that was because of, um, he mentioned 
uh, Delight's World Click, which uh, Groove is in the Heart, is was a huge single in this era. Um, and you had a lot of the New Jack uh, artists. Um, oh, so there's a great De La Soul record from this year. So a lot of like, there was a lot of cross pollination. And it also helped be- that this is, I think this is the year of um, the crossover uh, hit between anthrax and public enemy which yeah. made me go buy not the anthrax record but go buy the public enemy record as a uh you know 17 year old kid who had no knowledge of either band i i went with the uh with the um political hip-hop artist from new york and it uh made more of an i guess made a, a big impression because i became a lifelong public enemy fan after that um Mike Bond mentioned some of the ones that he, we haven't talked about. Tad's Eight Way Santa, Throwing Muses, The Real Ramona, Primus, Sailing on the Sea of Cheese, The Wedding Presents, Sea Monsters, Slint's Spiderland, The Self-Titled Album by Electronic, The Wonder Stuff's Never Loved Elmas. Uh, he mentioned the Mock Turtles that you had mentioned earlier. Uh, Marissa, Babes in Toylands to Mother, Massive Attacks, Blue Lines, uh, their debut record slow dives de- debut record just for a day holes debut record pretty on the inside and super chunks no pocky for kitty which of course uh we covered many years ago on this podcast can we talk about tad real quick yeah I remember uh 92 93 like every band that was in the press that had been accused of ripping off nirvana was citing tad early tad is one of their their bigger influences and obviously that was also an influence on nirvana yeah yeah they were definitely one of the bands that you would when you read the article about any seattle band it'd be like oh you know the referencing either tad or green river you know along the lines of seattle bands um love battery put out between Mm -hmm. the eyes that year that's another band that like i i sort of I sort of missed because they were coming out at a time that I was just starting to like, you know, get between hair metal and alternative metal. And I wasn't sure what love battery was all about, but um, that's a band that I've gone back and, and sort of rediscovered. That's really good. Um, as much as I would love to keep you guys here for like six hours and just keep talking about 1991, we are hitting, getting close to the two hour mark of, uh, <laughs> of talking here. So it was that how- big a year. uh and for those of us who have to go to work uh you know at their normal hour tomorrow uh on the east coast uh, i want to release you at a recent at a a decent time so how about this give me i'm going to go around the virtual uh uh hollywood squares here and say give me your pick you've got to you've got to present to an alien or a small child uh, who's into music? What does 1991 sound like? Pick your album that you're gonna say. This is not, this is what 1991 is for me, Scott. I'm gonna start with you. For me, in 1991, it's 10 without question. I listen to 10 all the time. Okay, definitive. I like it, Eric. For you, 1991, one record. Well. I guess I'm going to go with uh, Driving and Crying's Fly Me Courageous. There you yeah. go. It's It covers all of the bases from, from everything that came before to alternative and what would come after. All right. I like this diversity that we're already starting with here. Uh, Mr. Hooper? 
Are you going to pop robe apples? Uh, <laughs> next year. Next year. Uh, Jesus lizard goat. Just goat. Or noise rock at its finest. Musicianship top notch. Production by Steve Albini. Thank you very much. Goat. So you're going to scare the aliens away, aliens away with the, with oh, David scared. Yow's. Yeah, they're scared. They're terrified. Around my house? No. <laughs> Marissa, what's your pick for 1991? Prima because everyone should come to the realization, as I did, that rock and roll and dance music are the same thing. We want to be free to do what we want to do. We want to get mm-hmm. loaded. We want to have a good time. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Chip. I'm going to go with one that I haven't even I didn't even bring up. Um, Fishbones, the reality of my surroundings. So that's another band that, like, you know, Rip Magazine introduced me. Scott Ian wore uh, Fishbone T-shirts and Anthrax photos, and so I went out and bought it. And it's funk, it's R and B, it's soul, it's metal, it's hard rock, it's alternative. That album has two, to me, of their best singles: um, "Everyday Sunshine" and "Sunless Saturday." Um, and that's of all the all the albums besides Saigon Kick and Enough's Enough. Um, that one, the Fishbone album, is one that I return to all the time. Jeff, what is your pick for your 91 album? So to answer your precise question about what would you show a small child, um, I bought (laughs) eight gig iPods for each of my kids shortly after they turned six. And I gave them uh, three albums from 1991. But if I have to pick my best, it's it's, uh, never mind. What were the other two? Loveless and 10. And it's, it's never mind is the one they gravitate towards. I mean, they like the even flow videos. It's perfectly fine to show six-year-olds quite a bit of music videos for the record. Uh, but yeah, they love never mind. Interesting. Wit, what are you picking for your record for 91? All right. I, I know it's supposed to be never mind. And I know I want it to be <laughs> Trompe Le Monde, but that's not the Pixie's best record. So I'm going to go off the board and embrace my uh, power pop uh, loving innards and pick Matthew's sweet girlfriend. Nice. Jay? Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to caveat it. I think the record that sounds most like what's to come is Bad Motor Finger. I think the record I would pick to represent 91 is Temple of the Dog because Ooh. it's released in April to a giant WTF. Like, who are these guys? Who the hell is Andrew Wood? Why does any of this matter? Then Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all that happens. And all of a sudden it's, oh, wow, this is on Guard happens. And all of a sudden it's completely relevant and a big deal and everybody cares. Um, About... I bought the Temple of the Dog CD because it had the stickers that features members of Mother Love Bone. And then I bought the Pearl Jam CD because it said features members of Mother Love Bone and Temple of the Dog. And then later, and then later the Temple of the Dog CD says features members of Pearl Jam. I, like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I bought Temple of the Dog and Pearl Jam on compact disc at Tower Records on the same day because they were both like $12.99 or something. And I take it up to the counter and I'm probably 20 years old. And the 24, 25 year old woman at the counter just says to me, oh, so there's records are so good. You can hear them mourning their friend. And it's like, this would not have happened two years earlier. 
<laughs> People at the counter didn't care. We had no yeah. tower records. Um, you know, the idea that a record that's a tribute to a fallen friend would, would even register yeah. was, was nothing. And that's another one of the promo cassettes I bought at Use Kids Records in Columbus. I bought Temple of the Dogs promo advanced cassette probably three months before it came out. And like, I don't even know if I knew who exactly was on it for sure. I can't remember that. I can remember buying the cassette early though. And, and like, it was like having this secret. There's no internet. So you weren't not, at, n- very few people had it. Yeah. And so like every time I was at a party, I'm like, oh, listen to this. Like, I remember like touting that one a lot before it came out. And I also remember the Allison Chains guys being on Headbangers Ball. There's an infamous episode where they go to a water park. And the last video they showed was Temple of the Dog. And I believe the the Allison Chains crew were the ones that managed to get that video on Headbangers Ball. And this, I think, was before the whole album broke. So there really was that that kind of cohesive like mourning among this this group of people that it wasn't just you know, the guys in Pearl Jam, or it wasn't just Chris Cornell. It seemed to be the whole community there. And if you're interested in reliving that Alice in Chains water park, watch HBO's Class Action Park, which is a documentary about the park that uses a lot of footage of those guys visiting (laughs) the park. It's pretty amazing. It's like, again, like that circle that Scott just described where you're coming back again. (laughs) It's, wait a minute, uh, that this was an actual place. Nice. All right. Two hours. We should probably uh, give our listeners a what you didn't. Did you pick yours? Oh, um, so if I'm being honest, the record I listened to the most boys to men in 1991. Yes. Cooley high harmony by boys. No, it was honestly Octum baby. Um, I, I was totally entranced by the, by the one, video and song like i i didn't know what i was like what is this this is so like simple but it's like moving me in a way i'm not like comfortable with as a 17 year old boy (laughs) and um i just thought it was like i got that record i got that cd and i was just like there's so many weird guitar sounds and it's it just was like mind blowing because I was not a U2 fan. I did not own the Joshua Tree. I didn't own uh, any of the records before that. I knew the singles just from being on MTV. And that was the first record where I I really was invested through the whole album. So it would probably it would be Octoon Baby. That does sound like 91. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. a cut and paste of all the different sounds of that time. Yeah. What was that motion you were doing there, uh, Scott? Were you? <laughs> you you're muted, by the way. Gesturing at someone off screen. Oh. Uh, uh. Time. <laughs> we're, 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 running, we're running up against bedtime. Cut this. Cut this. Or He's coming out of uh, Four Seasons. Yeah. Is that your lawyer? Little Rudy. <laughs> Rudy can't He's got better Rudy? hair. He's got way better hair. His yes. hair doesn't melt. <laughs> hey so, so, jay you yeah. mentioned Soundgarden, bad motor finger yeah i was listening to it this week and back when we did the nirvana roundtable i talked about how teen spirit starts off with this guitar part that sounds like a completely different kind of of album mm-hmm. so does bad motor finger yeah it starts off 
little tinny like throwback guitar thing and then it kicks into what we know as Soundgarden. So maybe that's also a big part of 1991 that we don't talk Look about. Look at what about. he's got. Look oh at Oh my Luke. god, what is that? Johnny's showing us a What is Look that? Look at all this Soundgarden love from the Soundgarden. Yeah, it's like a it's part of the re-release that they they uh, issued a few years back and this thing it's a spinning wheel of the oh my god oh it's like the album cover thing yeah oh that is so cool it's like a 3d version of the album cover art coming that's really cool that would have been also my probably my my uh, nomination for the record that like i liked it at the time i didn't fully understand it (laughs) like i couldn't absorb all of it right taking me years and years and years of listening to that record to really like unpack everything that's going on and how amazing it is. Yeah. All right. We got to wrap up because Scott's got to put his kid to bed. So let's, uh, <laughs> I want to say thank you to uh, everybody who, who joined us. Uh, we will have um, more discussion, of course, at our Patreon page, at our discord channels uh, that, about 1991, uh, the 30th anniversary of this very important year uh, for our podcast. So, um, if you want to join us at that, uh, at those locations, you just join our, our Patreon page for as little as two bucks a month. And that's, that's how you get to, uh, participate in those discussions, vote in the polls, help us pick records each month, help us decide the topics for our roundtables and our, our eighties episodes, uh, that are exclusive to our Patreon community. And then of course, uh, you can also read the box newsletter, uh, entries that go out to the, uh, email boxes of folks who sign up for it via digmeoutpodcast.com every week. Uh, record reviews, one-minute reviews of new releases relevant to the 80s and 90s, books, movies, and music. And uh, if you like what you heard, uh, you know, leave us some feedback over at Apple Podcasts. Scott, Eric, Chip, Marissa, Johnny, Jeff, Wit. this camera, I, I'm doing a hot ones one here. This camera, this camera, this camera, tip, no. <laughs> Anybody watch Hot Ones? That's it's a great show on YouTube about celebrities eating really hot wings and um, crying. Usually crying is involved, except for Natalie Portman, who I think is a robot after watching her episode. She's clearly not a human being because she ate the hottest wings on Earth and uh, did not suffer at all. So I don't understand that. But uh, thank Mar- you Marty all. from Beautiful Girls. Yes. Yes. She doesn't she shed her. a tear. Like Gordon Ramsay told, is falling apart. She told apart. you she's an old soul. She is. Old souls don't cry. They can take Gor- the heat. Gordon Ramsay was falling apart by the sixth wing, and she powered through ten wings without shedding a tear. So uh, she is she is an immortal. I don't know how she does it. Um, thank you all for joining us uh, for this episode and spending your Sunday nights on this first uh this first january of uh of 2021 which is sure to be a a fantastic year after what we went through in uh in 2020 so uh for all of us and jay i'm tim we're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out come on swing uh.